note that on your check or um, on whatever form you're giving with and um, let us know so we can make sure that gets done. Thank you. All right, awesome. Okay, so if you, if you missed out earlier, uh, we started going through uh, different arguments for God's existence, and we talked a little bit about atheism, agnosticism, the differences there, and uh, the focus here is to make disciples, to have conversations with people, um, not to win an argument, because a lot of times you win an argument, you lose a person, um, so we don't want to do that. Uh, but this is just things you would have in, in conversation of, you know, have you thought about this? That, that, that kind of an idea. That's, that's what we're looking for. Um, so I did the first two of my six arguments, um, which would be from design and order. And so just the fact that there's a design, there's got to be a designer. And everything has this order. Um, as, as much as there might be this or that happening in life, you can see constants in the whole universe. Uh, laws of physics, math, logic, things like that. Okay, so now um, we're going to come. This one might be a little bit complicated. Um, but I'm going to try to keep it simple for us so you can understand. And uh, this is the argument from the second law of thermodynamics, okay? So maybe you can just throw away that if you want to. Just know that what it means is um, there's this idea of the conservation of energy in there, the conservation of energy. So a specific nuance of thermodynamics is that energy is only transferred. It, it cannot be created or destroyed, okay? So it cannot be created or destroyed. So it transfers like sparks become a flame, um, you know, a battery powers a cell phone, that kind of thing. Uh, it's the transfer of energy, but it's not created or destroyed anywhere, ever. Um, so that kind of becomes a problem uh, because it's illogical then, it's illogical for energy to exist. It just, it doesn't make sense. Uh, the same thing with matter, it just transfers forms. It doesn't really get created or destroyed, it just transfers. Um, and so it's something to, to get someone to think about, put a little rock in their shoe so that they won't let it go. Um, and uh, you're going to make them think about this a little bit. Um, so if it cannot be created or destroyed, how does it exist, right? That, that's a big question. Uh, there must have been something supernatural to um, begin this thing. Uh, so uh, the idea of a miracle, you understand, for us to understand what a miracle is, we understand that God uh, intervenes in the natural order of things. That's what a miracle is. So he raised the dead. He did create things, right? He walked on water. Uh, he did lots of things that defied the laws of physics, defied the laws that he made. And that's what a miracle is. So we do accept that these, these rules break. Um, that's not illegal. You know, God, God is God. And that's the only way he proves he's God. He shows this is who I am by breaking his own laws uh, that he created. Okay? Um, so that's a pretty cool thing. But they have a hard time with this one. Uh, so what they have to do is they actually have to say that the universe itself is infinite in both space and time. In both space and time, the universe is infinite. Uh, because it can't really have any edges, um, because the energy, um, well, it gets a little complicated, but the energy has to be able to uh, keep moving around for an infinite space. Um, and so they have a problem with it even having edges, being finite, being bound. Um, so we, we would say that uh, the universe is a closed system, that it has edges, it's bound. Uh, God created this thing. He says he measures the heavens with the span. The span is you know, the cross-section of your hand there. Um, and so that's a little bit of poetic language, but I think it's safe to say that it is a finite thing. You have the heaven, whereas God's throne outside of the universe. And so that would tell me right there that it has edges or something outside of it, right? We're going to kind of come back to that thought a little later, so just kind of keep that in the back of your head. Uh, another part of the second law of thermodynamics is called entropy, and entropy is the idea that everything kind of breaks down. 
Um, you know, ice becomes water, okay? That's, that's what entropy is. Everything kind of breaks down. If I were to have a ball right next to my face that had a rope attached to it, and I were to drop that ball, let it go, it would swing out, and it would not hit my face. It would not hit my face. It would come back close, but it wouldn't hit my face. And the more times it swings, the closer it gets to the middle, until finally it just stops right there in the middle. By the way, you want to see a cool trick? Watch this. Isn't that neat? It's kind of stuff. Okay. That was, that was for free. Okay. But um, anyways, this thing, it'll swing and swing. That's entropy. It breaks down. It doesn't, it doesn't keep its energy, right? It doesn't keep it. It breaks down. Um, so one of the, the ideas that they have for the universe is that there's this big bang. You guys are familiar with that. There's this big bang, right? So they would say the big bang goes out, and then eventually um, it kind of slingshots back. Like a rubber band, has, you know, it has tension, and it comes back down. And it big bangs again. And this is an infinite thing because they say the universe is infinite in time and space, right? It never had a beginning. See, they understand that something had to not have a beginning. <laughs> they understand that. And they understand that there had to have been uh, intelligence, will, and ability. That's something we were touching on a little bit this morning. Uh, something had to have intelligence, will, and ability, all three of those things. And so they give it to the universe. And they say something has to not have a beginning. Well, they give that to the universe too. Uh, all of a sudden, the universe is a divine being. Um, and so this says that this thing keeps happening over and over, but that can't be because of entropy. So eventually, it would slowly stop. It would not big bang anymore. It would come down and just, and just stop. Well, if it's already been around for an infinite period of time, then it, it would be impossible for it to still be happening uh, because infinite is infinite, right? Um, that creates a problem. Uh, so that they have several issues here with these theories because they understand that something could not have had a beginning. And something had to start it all. And it's just to get people to think about that, consider these things, it can be a little troubling for them. Uh, just be gentle and loving with the whole thing. Okay? Um, so let's move on. Let's go to the argument from change here. So we, as we look around the world, uh, everything around us is changing all the time. Things are changing. Um, an acorn transforms into an oak tree. Uh, a mountain erodes into dirt and rocks. And ice turns to water. Water turns to steam. Everything is always changing. Um, so why does a thing change? A thing changes because there are outside forces. There's things outside of it that are acting on it. Coffee break. Coffee's very spiritual. There's a whole book, Hebrews, right? So, all right. So, <clears throat> it's also why the man should make coffee, Hebrews. Okay. All right, that was sexist. All right, let's go. Uh, um, let's see here. A thing changes because forces are acting outside of it. And so an acorn requires uh, soil, sun, water, and wind to become strong. It needs all those things to become this big oak tree. It's interesting that it needs wind. There was a study done once where they had everything that this little uh, environment needed, specifically focusing on these trees, uh, to grow and be strong. And then they put this dome around it so that it had everything it needed except there was no wind. There was no wind. And the trees end up wilting and dying. Um, because they need that wind resistance. They need that wind to actually be strong. Um, so that makes me think uh, in Revelation 7 1, uh, part of the, I believe, trumpet judgments there, I think it's going to be the first one, it says that uh, they, they do not allow wind to blow on a tree. And, you know, at first glance, you may think, well, why is that so bad? You know, you already had all these horrible sealed judgments in the book of Revelation. Then it says, and no wind blows on a tree. It's like, okay. <laughs> uh, but what that does is it, it makes these, all the trees die. And that, that kind of becomes a problem. That kind of becomes a problem. Okay, uh, moving on. So the mountain is eroded by water and wind. Of course, dynamite works too, right? But uh, these outside forces are causing it to change. Uh, temperature alters the various forms of dihydrogen monoxide. You guys know about dihydrogen monoxide? 
It's H2O. It's just water. That's all it is. You, should, you can check that out. It's on there's like websites and stuff. And there's people that they'll talk about dihydrogen monoxide. And they'll say like it, it's lethal. It can kill you. And you know, you know, ten out of ten people that drink uh, dihydrogen monoxide will die. You know, um, it's, just, it's just water. And so it's, it's, uh, there's actually been uh, people that have made petitions. And like majority of people in schools or different places that you know vote yes, we should ban dihydrogen monoxide. It's water. Okay, so um, yes, temperature alters the forms of water. Um, everything changes. Now, even the universe, even the universe changes. Um, a tree changes, the earth changes, even the universe. There's actually about 17 verses in the Bible stating that the heavens are being stretched out. Um, specifically saying the heavens are being stretched out like a curtain or like some other fabric, like a tent, you know. And it says different things. Uh, we can look up a couple of those. Let's go to Psalm 104. These are more logical arguments this evening, so unfortunately I'm using less scripture. I kind of front-loaded the scripture this morning, but um, Psalm 104.2 it's just one of these places we see this. And uh, it says, well, I'll start with verse 1 because it's kind of in the middle of the sentence here. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. And then it says, stretching out the heavens like a tent. You know, the scientists have finally caught up. They've actually figured out that uh, space is kind of a fabric. Space is kind of a fabric, and they can see it. We can observe it. We observe space stretching out. And so they think, well, this is probably just the after effect of this Big Bang thing. But you got to remember, this Big Bang thing is a theory. Um, you know, the, the Big Bang was probably when Jesus spoke, right? And, and, it, and it came to existence. Um, but there's this being stretched out. Uh, now, it's 17 different verses are saying this. So obviously, this is actually a, a big thing that God is doing. It's part of the evidence. If you were here this morning, we looked at Psalm 19. And we, we notice that if you just look up in the sky, day after day, night after night, it becomes obvious that there's a creator God out there. That he is doing something. He's done something marvelous. Uh, let's also go then to Isaiah 40. And there's another place you'll see it. Isaiah 40, verse uh, 22. So here it says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, uh, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. <laughs> uh, what's interesting is some people have used this. Um, two different groups have used this. One group is the flat earth people. You guys know the flat earth people? Are there any here? I hope it don't, don't admit to it. Okay. So um, the, the, the flat earth people will try to use this. They'll say, a circle, is that two-dimensional or three-dimensional? I say, well, that's two-dimensional. It's flat. Oh, there you go. That's not it. Okay. So the, the Bible uses poetry. It uses poetry. Uh, but think about this. Um, if you are standing very high up, let's say you're high up on a ladder on a roof, and you're looking down, and there's a little ball. There's a little ball on the ground like a baseball. The shape that you see when you're looking directly down at the ball is a circle. Okay, that, That's what you see. And so it's poetic language. God's so high above us and big that when he looks down at the earth, it's like a little circle. It's like we're like grasshoppers. You know, We're, we're a bunch of nothings. Okay, so that's the idea. But then here's the next uh, little phrase I want you to catch. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? It's kind of cool. So he says it over and over and over. It's all, it's all changing. So we can see this, though. We see lots of other things. If you dig into astronomy, lots of things are changing in the universe. Okay, so what does that mean? Remember, for something to change, there are forces outside of it acting on it. And here we see God taking credit. Uh, of course, it's possible that God would actually use some sort of um, you know, creative order that he made uh, to actually do it. So it's kind of like this. Um, 
if one of you in here blesses me in, in some way or another, I can thank you, but I also have to thank God, don't I? Because um, all things, all things that are good come from God the Father. James 1 is very clear about this. And so he's doing it, but a lot of times he uses people or things to do something. And so when it says God stretches out the curtains, we, we, the, you know, the heavens like a curtain, we, we could find out one day that there's some, there's some sort of uh, law of physics that's doing this. But ultimately, who's responsible? God is. That's the same idea. Okay? Um, so we see everything changes. This must mean something. This must mean something. So um, let's see. So the universe, then it's kind of going back to this whole infinite idea. The universe cannot be infinite uh, because it's changing. Um, you can't stretch infinity. You can't do it. If it's an infinite, you can't grab a hold of it and stretch it, right? That doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, it's infinite. Um, and then, uh, we've already kind of talked about the other part. Okay, so then there must be outside forces acting on the universe. So the universe changes what's outside of it. Um, so the universe then cannot be infinite because something, something, we don't know what it is. Something's acting on it. Uh, of course, we would say it's God, but something you have to agree on is there must be something outside of it that has intelligence, will, and ability. Something that would have started it, that would have created it. Um, it has to have intelligence to know what, what it wants, the will to desire to do it, and the ability, the actual power to do it. And of course, there must be a divine, infinite being itself. Um, so it's uh, the thing that is, so some people argue for like a multiverse kind of thing. They say there's like layers and layers, there's multiple universes and things, it's a bunch of nonsense. But anyways, um, if they were to use that argument, um, then there ultimately still would have to be something outside of the last thing. There has to be a last thing at some point. And whatever that last thing is, what's outside of it? There has to be a final thing. Whatever that final thing is must itself be infinite, must itself have that intelligence, will, and ability, and must itself then be unchanging because there would be nothing outside of it acting on it. And so it must be unchanging itself. And, of course, we see this in Scripture. God is immutable. That's the fancy word for unchanging. Let's go look at that a little bit. Let's go to Malachi 3.6. Malachi, the only Italian prophet. <laughs> Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. <laughs> A powerful truth there, by the way, uh, because God made covenants with Israel. And uh, as sinful and wicked as they were, time and time and time again, just like we are, um, they, God was still faithful to preserve them. There was even a time when uh, Moses was up on that Mount Sinai, he got his Ten Commandments, right? He goes down there and he sees the whole golden calf situation, really bad deal. They were being very wicked. You know, Moses gets so mad, he breaks the tablets, right? Uh, God says, stand back, I'm going to destroy them all. And so what does Moses do? <clears throat> Moses argues with God. Doesn't seem like a wise decision to make, but God knew he would do it and God wanted to teach us something. God doesn't actually change his mind ever, he doesn't. But he, did, he condescended down to Moses' level so that he would record this moment and we can learn from him. And so, basically, God's like, hey, why shouldn't I destroy these people? And Moses says, don't do it for your name's sake, to glorify your name, because you, you brought these people out, and if they all die, they're going to think you're a worthless God. <laughs> and Moses goes, or God says, basically, bingo, this is the will be paraphrased, he says, bingo, um, that's right, I'm not going to destroy them because I'm going to glorify my name. That's why. And so, you, know, you, you figured it out. Um, so God is faithful. He is unchanging. He will glorify himself, uh, even through stubborn people like you and I. Okay, so then we go, let's go to Psalm 102. 
Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. It says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. So kind of uh, a little bit more of evidence of it being a limited universe is it's like a garment. He will destroy it, and he's going to make it new. Um, so just kind of changing it out. Uh, but he will remain. That's the whole point. He always remains. He is unchanging. Uh, let's go to Hebrews 13.8. We'll end with this one. This is the more famous verse, Hebrews 13.8. A lot more people are at least uh, familiar with this. And um, it, the idea is several, it's, it's mentioned several times throughout scriptures in the Old Testament things as well. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. There it is. And of course, uh, we have one God, right? So all you can say that about the whole Godhead. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Totally unchanging. Uh, it's important to know because if something ever changes, then it was not perfect either before or after the change. Um, so if there's ever any change at all in God, that means either he wasn't previously perfect or he is no longer perfect. So it's very important for us to understand that he is unchanging. That's an important doctrine, uh, which means there's nothing outside of him acting on him as well. Okay, so um, if something is infinite, then it's, it is uh, complete. It's kind of a cool idea. You know, what is infinite? Only God is infinite, really. Um, and, you know, the persons of God, the work of God um, is not necessarily infinite unless he makes it that way, right? Um, if he causes it to endure, uh, but it all has a starting point, so you, you can't really call it infinite. So it's really only the persons of God and the word of God that is infinite. It's kind of a cool idea. Um, everything else has edges, whether in quality or quantity. If something uh, has no edges in uh, quantity, we call that infinite. If something has no edges in quality, we call that eternal. Uh, it's kind of a cool idea. You know, eternal life doesn't just mean you live forever. Um, everyone, everyone's soul endures forever. Uh, believers and unbelievers, that's infinite life. Uh, believers and unbelievers alike have infinite life. They're, they're conscious they're, they're going to be conscious, uh, consciously existing. That's what I'm looking for. They'll be consciously existing for an infinite amount of time, whether with or without the Lord's presence. Um, but eternal life is a quality of life, and it begins upon the moment of salvation and lasts forever. It's a quality. The quality is so good, it never ends. Um, so eternal life is one of the places that's uh, defined as John 17, 3, in Jesus' high priestly prayer. And uh, he says, uh, this, and this is eternal life. He actually gives a definition. And he basically will be paraphrased here, that you have a relationship with the Father and the Son. So you can, you know, maybe check that out some other time. Uh, kind of a cool idea. That was, that was actually extra. I didn't plan on going there. But, okay, so um, let's see. Let's, let's just move on. Let's go to the next argument uh, from cause and effect. Cause and effect. This one's kind of cool. Um, they're all kind of cool. Okay, here we go. Uh, everything came from something. So we have a logical little thing here. Everything came from something. No matter who you are, you, you believe that. Okay. Um, everything came from something. Everyone came from someone. Any existence is the effect of a previous cause. Okay. Any existence is the effect of a previous cause. Uh, all effects are preceded by causes. We're starting out really simple. Uh, that is to say, all existence came from someone or something. Everyone's on the same page so far. So there is no effect without cause. It's kind of drilling the point home here. The problem here, can you identify the problem? If, if you're talking to somebody 
And you say, everything comes from something. If something exists, it comes from something else. You go ahead and talk out to me. What, what, what would be the problem if you're trying to convince someone that God exists? Who created God? Who created God? Popular question. Well, where did God come from? Where did God come from? And so then you say, well, God didn't come from nothing. And you say, and you say well, you just said that something comes from something, right? You, you have, so there's, there's a problem here, okay? We have a problem. Um, everyone has a problem, actually, at this point. What, no matter what you believe, no matter who you are, everyone at this point must have faith and must be illogical. It's kind of an interesting thing. Now, the faith part's no problem for us. That's no problem for us. We say, yeah, of course we have faith in God. Of course we do. We have faith in the scriptures. We have, we have faith in the person of God. Um, now, for someone, an atheistic person, an agnostic person, they might have a little trouble with that. They're going to say, no, 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 I don't have any faith. See, an atheist, it's very important for them not to have faith because if they have faith, well, that's a spiritual thing. See, what they can do, um, there's people called a uh, materialist, um, and, th and that's not like the big house, fancy car kind of idea. Materialism is the belief that there is only material. There is only matter. There's only physical things. There is no spiritual thing. And so uh, something like joy and peace, you know, if you do enough studies in a lab, you'll, you'll figure out that there are chemicals released in the body that make joy or make peace, right? They're simultaneous anyways. Um, so they would argue that there's only matter. But faith, you cannot do that with faith. There is no chemical released or anything with faith. There's nothing material that's connected to faith. And so it becomes a problem. So if faith is real, that means there is a spiritual realm. If there is a spiritual realm, there logically would be spiritual beings. If there are spiritual beings... There must be a greatest of the beings, which would be God. That creates a big problem. Okay, so this, this, is, how, this is what we're going to do. So um, I usually, you know, I, I should have brought something with you guys, but this, this is what I'm going to do. Um, if you would like my entire outline, and plus uh, I'll draw out what I'm about to explain to you, um, then you can email me. My card's in the back. You can just, just make a little note to yourself. Email me on my email back there and just say you want it, and I will get it to you, okay? I'll do that for you. Um, so I, I usually have a dry erase board. I draw this out, and I didn't really think about it ahead of time. <laughs> but all life comes from life. So I usually draw out a you know, life, you know, an arrow, life, you know. So then I have another box, another box next to those. And I say, but where did that come from? There's only two schools of thought. And whatever's going to be in these boxes here, it's, it's going to be illogical, and it's going to require faith. It's going to be illogical, it's going to require faith. So you only have two options. Number one, first option, there is an infinite number of first causes. So there's cause and effect, right? Anything that's an effect had a cause. So what an evolutionist does a lot of times is they say, well, because uh, you say, well, where, where did the, you know, the squirrel come from or something? You know, eventually uh, it's going to come back to a rock, you know. <laughs> um, it's it's going to, you know, this came from this, this came from that. You know, where did that come from? Where did that come from? Eventually it gets down to there was a bunch of gases in space and there was a spark. You know, that's the Big Bang, right? But you can say, well, where did that stuff come from? Where did it come from? Everything has to come from something. Um, so they, they have a problem. And the only way they can cover that up is just to say that there is an infinite number of first causes that are creating things. Now, does that make sense? No, that does not make sense. That, that cannot be. That is illogical. And if you were to actually believe that, that is a faith position. That's a position of faith because that's not observable. That's not repeatable. And it breaks all rules of logic. So that, that requires faith. Okay? So then that, they're kind of in a, they have a problem. Now, the only other option is if there is an infinite first cause. 
if the, the, the first cause itself never had a beginning, an infinite life source with intelligence, will, and ability, that's the only other option. That also is illogical for something to not have a beginning, right? Um, but that's what's beautiful about God. He's incomprehensible. He's so far above us. Uh, but there, there has to be. There's only one of those two options. There has to be. And so what that does with somebody is it pinpoints them to understand that they are acting in faith. Whatever you think about the origins of life, it's a faith position. No matter who you are, where you're coming from, it's a faith position. So you're just getting someone to recognize that, and it's a first, it's a first step in the right direction. Um, if they actually hear you out and they don't get angry and run away or something, then um, they, they now cannot be an actual atheist anymore. <laughs> uh, and I, I've had actually lots of conversations with people um, that would have to say, well, I guess I can't really call myself an atheist anymore because, um, I, yeah, I, I do believe, I believe in something. There has to be something there, you know. And so it gets them thinking. It gets them in the right direction. Kind of cool stuff. Um, okay, so then my last argument, this one's, um, this is really powerful. This is super powerful. In fact, a lot of times, this is just maybe my go-to. Uh, I'll have a couple of little arguments, uh, maybe mention design, you know, the, some of those kind of things. Um, talk about creation, and then I go for this one, uh, morality. Morality. Now, morality does not make sense if you have no God in the picture. If you, if you sincerely believe there is no God, it does not make sense to have morality, good or evil. It does not make sense. So, um, there is a sense of morality across the entire globe, all of Earth. Um, this sense of morality has many common points, many common points. These common points, we're going to call those moral absolutes. Don't murder people. <laughs> Don't steal my stuff, right? Um, things like this, those are, those are moral absolutes. Everyone agrees. You know, I, I can go to another culture, and I don't have to think, well, is murdering okay here? <laughs> you know, no, it's not. Um, now, of course, what they've always allowed is killing, right? So there's a difference between murder and killing. Um, and so killing could be done in an act of war. Killing can be done in self-defense, right? Um, uh, killing can be done you know, against an animal for food, that, that kind of thing. Uh, but murder would be that evil intent, right? Morality is built into that term, murder, okay? That's, that, we're going to come back to that idea. So there must be a common source for all these moral absolutes. So what evolutionists would believe is that around the earth, life just kind of sprung up. All around the earth, life just kind of sprung up. Evolution is, evolution is actually a very racist idea as well, if you didn't know this. Um, it, what it has the idea is that we are primates. We didn't come from primates. We are primates. We're just higher, higher developed primates. And so um, if you look around, look around the world, you think to yourself, well, who looks less like a primate? Who looks more like a primate? Uh, this was many evolutionary ideas. And so whoever looks the least like a primate they are obviously the higher, higher evolved, more developed people. That's horrible. That's a horrible idea. Uh, that's not what God teaches at all. He says we all came from Adam. We're all one blood. Uh, we're all connected. The ideas of racism purely come from atheism and evolution, and it's horrible. Um, and so the idea of a race is that there is life all around the earth, and they're racing for survival, racing to thrive all around. And that's how we all look different and you know, act different and stuff. But here's, here's something interesting. If this has all just accidentally happened, how come all around the earth we all have the same moral absolutes? How can that be? Let's develop that idea. Um, so, you know, if, if someone, you know, say you're driving, you're driving down the street, you know, you're going home, 
and someone just comes whipping out of like a gas station or something, cuts you off, you're, you slam on the brakes just to barely miss them. Um, and of course, you're a good Christian person, and so you say, bless you, my child, you know. Um, <laughs> you, you let them pass, right? But, uh, but of course, you understand, you know, you don't know, you don't have a clue who this person is. They're a complete stranger, but you know that they know they did a bad thing. <laughs> you know that they know. How do you know that they know? If somebody were to come by and just, a complete stranger, and you're in a public place even, and they come by and just, whoop, take your chair out from underneath you when you're about to sit down at a restaurant. Um, do you have to have a conversation? you have to go up and say, oh, I, I'm sorry, what, what's your name? Okay, Bob. All right, well, Bob, where I come from, <laughs> that's a bad thing, and we don't do that, okay? You don't have to have a conversation with somebody. You know that they know that they did wrong. Someone doesn't just murder a bunch of people. You put them in a courtroom and say, now, did you understand that we here as a society look down on this kind of behavior? And you know, oh, he didn't understand. Okay, well, let, let him off the hook, right? Um, of course we don't act this way. We know that they know. There's a common sense of morality, and you know that someone else understands morality. How is that? How is that possible for all just accidental life forms that sprung up around the earth? Okay, so this is because of the conscience. Let's check this out in Romans 2. Paul talks about the conscience a little bit here in Romans chapter 2. Of course, the context here is he's mainly focusing on the Jewish portion of the church and he's talking about how there is no excuse. He says this a couple of times. There is no excuse to not believe in God. There's no excuse. And he goes on reason after reason after reason. We explored some of Romans 1 this morning. And so now we're going to go into Romans 2. So notice in verse 1 it starts off again. Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Okay, no excuse. Uh, so, so it goes on all these different proofs. Well, now we're going to go down to, this is another reason why there's no, there's no reason why you can say that you, know, you didn't know any better or something like that. Let's look at verses 12 through 16. It says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Of course, talking about the Mosaic law, it's talking about the people of Israel being under the Mosaic covenant. And then, of course, all the Gentiles were not under the Mosaic covenant. Okay? So then it says in verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. In other words, just because you have Jewish blood and you have been under the Mosaic law and you've heard it your whole life does not mean you are a child of God. Okay, that, that's what he's making clear here. So then verse 14 says, For when Gentiles, that's, that's me, I'm a dirty pagan Gentile. It says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So here's the idea. There is the law, the moral law, written on your heart. Everyone around the earth, God has written the law of morality on their hearts. This is how people know, growing up in the middle of nowhere, they know what is good and what is bad. So they have this conscience so that when they go to do something, they're going to say something or do something, their conscience will pop up and either accuse them and say, that's a bad thing, you shouldn't do it, or it's going to excuse them and say, go ahead, that's okay. And so you can, now you can change your conscience if you ignore it enough, it gets quieter, okay? Um, even the Bible talks about don't sear the conscience. Um, you, know, you need to obey the conscience, okay? Because God put that in your head for a good reason. 
um, for, for a very good reason. Different from the Holy Spirit, though, but that's another thing. Okay, so the, the conscience is saying this is okay, this is not okay. So, you know, how do you explain this? You, you come up to something, and you say, now, I know this is a good thing I should be doing, but I don't want to do it. Or, I know this is a bad thing I shouldn't be doing, but I really want to do it, right? Okay, so how do you how do you explain that? How do you explain that? And God says you will be called uh, you will be called accountable at the end of your life um, for how you have dealt with your conscience. That, that's an interesting thing. Okay, so um, all right, so that's that's the conscience. Um, so if a person knows something is wrong but does not but does that wrong thing anyways, why, why can they not stop themselves from doing it? And that's an important question to you know, not, not be very um, argumentative necessarily with, but just make it be thought-provoking with somebody. And so, you know, have you ever done something that you believe is wrong? And if someone's honest with you, if, you, if you've built up a relationship ahead of time, then they'll say, yes, yes, there's, there's something I've done that I, I felt was wrong. And I'd say, well, why'd you do it? If you knew, if you knew, if you had that feeling, if you knew it, why'd you do it? And of course, these things are explained with original sin and sin nature. Uh, the idea of how we're just drawn to sin. You know, without God, we're just going to sin. We're, we're drawn to it. Uh, why do we sin? Because we like it. You know, that's the sad truth. Um, I, I don't hit my face uh, with a hammer. You know why? Because I don't like it. <laughs> it doesn't feel too good. Uh, but I will sin because, unfortunately, uh, I like it. Okay? So it's only with God's help that I would actually withstand that temptation. So um, for someone not believing God, that kind of comes an uncomfortable question. Uh, why can you not stop yourself, even if you know it harms you or somebody else? Uh, how would you explain that? There is no explanation without God. There really is not. So there must be a source for universal morality. Um, and this is the problem. This is why people don't like this, that are not believers. They don't like it because if there is a source of universal morality, then there must be accountability. There must be judgment. There must be purpose and meaning and consequences. Uh, all these things must be true. If there was a creator um, and there is good and evil, there will be this... Um, Judgment, accountability, purpose, meaning, consequences, all those sort of things. So, there must be a standard of good. There must be a standard of good, okay? Now, this is the tricky part. So, if someone says, and I've had people tell me this all the time, and they'll say, they'll say I think God is evil. <laughs> and I go, okay, why do you say he's evil? And, and they start bringing up things that are recorded in Scripture that they don't, they don't feel is right, they don't understand it, they don't feel it's right. And I say, but by what standard are you calling him evil? Uh, what standard? The only standard we actually have is God himself. And God is good. So it doesn't really make sense. What, how do you say something is good or evil? What gives you the right to say something is good or evil? There must be a standard of good. This becomes a big problem, a very big problem. Uh, if there is evil, then there is good. If there is evil, then there is good. If there is good, then there is evil. It goes both ways. Okay? There must be a standard of good that is three things. Universal, objective, and consistent. Universal, it applies to everyone. 100% of people. It has to apply to 100% of people. And it must be consistent. So if it was evil 3,000 years ago, it's evil today. Okay? And same thing for good. It must be universal and consistent. And it must be objective. It cannot be subjective. Subjective means it comes from the subject, right? It, it comes from yourself. Um, so if I were to subjectively uh, determine something is good, it's just how I feel. You know, it's whatever I think, you know. But objective is, is a standard that is outside of yourself. It's something you can look to. It's, a, it's, a, it's that proper ruler measurement. 
Um, so if you have a ruler, then you know exactly what is 12 inches, right? Every time, you know exactly what is 12 inches. And this is the ruler, it's the standard. Um, so God is sort of the ruler for morality. Um, he is the standard. He says this is good and this is exactly what is good. Anything more or less is not good. Just like the ruler is 12 inches, anything more or less is not 12 inches. It's as simple as that. It's a fact. So only God fits that standard of being universal, objective, and consistent. Everything else will fall apart. Everything else does. Um, you know if a line is crooked when, when a perfectly straight line is put next to it. Okay? So how do you know if something is crooked or evil? How do you know that? It's only if something is good is placed next to it. That straight line next to the crooked line. That's the only way you know. You know, something that can't be understood is, you know, an evolutionist, an atheist type person, they would believe that we are animals, right? We are animals. They, they wouldn't say there's any difference. We're, we are animals. Of course, we, we would disagree with that, right? And we find there's a few reasons that there's a difference. Um, but how do you explain that uh, humans can murder? Animals don't. There's the praying mantis, the black widow. There's all these other things that happen in the animal kingdom. We don't ever say they murdered, right? We don't ever use that terminology. We say they killed. But we say a human murders. Well, why is that? Why is that? There's something special about humanity. We bear the image of God. Uh, of course, an atheist would not want to you know, go there, of course, right? Um, but there's something different. Um, I don't want to be crude, but you have um, you know, mating in the animal kingdom. Okay, we call it mating, and I'll just, you know, I'll use nice words here. So, um, but even if it's forceful, and it's a whole group, and things like that, all right, um, we still just call it mating, whereas with humans, the adults in the room, you know the other words that we use, right? Okay, so there, there's a big difference there. There's a big difference of morality. Why is it that mankind has this sense of morality, and the rest of the animal kingdom does not? So there's just too many questions. There's too many problems here. It all points to a universal, objective, consistent standard of good that is always good. There must be a perfect good. There must be a perfect good out there. And that is, of course, God. So where does that standard come from? There is no divine purpose, meaning, or morality. Uh, if, 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 sorry, if there is no divine purpose, meaning, or morality, then nothing can truly be evil. If there is nothing out there like a divine God that created then you cannot call anything good or evil. It's just a free-for-all. And that's a dangerous world to live in. Um, so if someone's, there's, so there's a guy, Sam Harris. Do you ever hear of Sam Harris? Anybody here? A couple, couple people? Okay, so Sam Harris, um, he's, he's really smart. He's funny. Um, he's, he's a good speaker and everything. And he even developed, he did a TED Talk. He did this thing called The Moral Landscape. And basically, uh, he makes the is-ought fallacy, uh, where he says, this is the way it is, so it ought to be. Um, so the question is, is how do you know what ought to be? How do you know that this is good and it ought to be that? So what he basically says is, well, here is suffering on this end, and here is smiles and giggling on this end. And so we want to go more to the smiles and giggling and less to the suffering. And he says, and that's what good is. Um, but that's a horrible, <laughs> that's a horrible definition. Um, because what is to say that ought to be how it is? Um, so, you know, you have the, the greater good for the greater number of people, right? That falls apart uh, because that means the minority will always suffer. That's not good. Uh, that's not good. True good will be good for everybody. Um, you know, if, if someone has, um, you know, if there's a courtroom situation and someone has done wrong um, and now they must be punished, well, that doesn't feel so good. So isn't that wrong then too? If, if wrong is only what feels bad, 
they, we, we wouldn't be able to have a justice system, really, uh, because it would make them feel bad. Uh, it, would, it would hurt them. Okay? What about self-defense? You wouldn't be able to defend yourself anymore because uh, they may be doing wrong by hurting you, but hey, two wrongs don't make it right, right? <laughs> if wrong is simply just suffering or pain or something like that, anything you can think of, it all falls apart. It all falls apart one thing at a time. It all falls apart. The only thing that does not fall apart is the universal, objective, consistent standard of good that is God himself, the creator God that created you and me and has given us purpose and meaning in this life, okay? Okay, so let's put it all together. Um, thinking about, you know, even Sunday school this morning and even now. So I have, I have a couple sentences here. God is the unchanging, intelligent creator who has designed the universe with purpose and order in such a way to reveal and glorify himself. God is the moral standard and will hold his creation accountable. I hope that was a help to you. Um, that's it for today. I was hoping, see, I don't really have much time. I was going to do a little, if there's any time left over, I was going to do some Q&A with you. Uh, if you had any questions, I'd answer them. Uh, what I'll do, though, um, is we can go ahead and wrap it up, and then I will uh, stick around for as long as you want me to. And uh, any kind of question answers that you, you know, any questions you have, apologetics type stuff, things we've covered. And remember, um, if you do want to get my outline with everything, uh, just send me an email. I have my business cards in the back under that mirror thing there. If you did want to address uh, a financial donation to Brains and Bibles, it is tax deductible. And it is brains and Bibles. You can adjust it to that. That'd be great. That'd be a blessing. Uh, let's have a word of prayer. And it's been a real honor to be here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. I appreciate all of you. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this day. Thank you so much for the opportunity uh, for your word to be spoken, for logic to exist. Um, we're so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us as the great creator moral God. Um, you have done so much for us. I pray that we would uh, effectively make disciples for you and uh, build these relationships with people as we also continue to build our relationship with you, Lord. It is a blessing to enter fellowship with you. I pray that we would encourage more uh, others to get, get into a relationship with you as well, uh, either uh, starting one or uh, developing a better relationship. Please use us. Let us be fit vessels for your use. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen.